Father, who are you that you would look upon man with such kindness and grace that you'd send your own son in the form of a baby to live a sinless life and die a sinner's death that we sinners might be saved by grace? Father, we've gathered here this morning to worship you in this season where the world pauses to recognize the birth of your Son. We ask, Lord, that you would quicken our hearts and that you would soften our spirits to receive the truth. We long to know him as he truly is, not a baby in a manger, but now as king at your right hand, reigning over the heavens and the earth. We want to know, Lord, that he was, in fact, incarnate, that he came and that he lived as a man, all the time being fully God as well. Father, these truths are utterly profound and yet sufficient to stir our hearts and to captivate our thoughts and, indeed, transform our lives. And so we're asking for you to do that for your own glory, that this would not be another sermon on the birth of Jesus Christ, but this would exercise the power of your word through the gospel of grace and through your Holy Spirit to transform us even this hour to be a holy people, a royal priesthood set apart for your glory, for the magnification of Christ's name and the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Father, I ask that you would help us as a church hear your word this morning, that we'd be rightly changed by it, and in so doing, rightly reflect the glory that you've poured out on us in Christ, that we would be the loving servants one to another in this church, that we'd be the faithful messengers to our family and our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors that they might hear this truth and repent and believe and be saved as well, and that we might be faithful worshipers of you above all else, that you might be pleased, Lord, with our lives because of the great work that you're doing in us through Christ. So help us celebrate well and truthfully this Christmas season. For your glory in Christ's name I pray, amen. Good morning. Merry Christmas early. I hope your plans include opportunities and times to recognize why we do this season. It's more than Santa Claus and it's more than presents and it's more than Christmas trees. You know that. Every single year the holidays bring around a a mixed bag of emotions. And we all sense this. Even in our secular advertisements there's this messaging that keeps going out about love and inclusion in the midst of a culture that at times seems broken and divided and oftentimes loveless. Microsoft right now is running a a commercial. I don't know if you've seen it. It's featuring a little boy who is physically challenged in a wheelchair and He's playing this video game, which we don't know about, but he's at this last level and he's about to win. The bulk of the commercial is all the kids in the neighborhood running to this boy's house to see whether or not the kid makes it. It culminates 
appropriately, the boy coming out of his wheelchair, dancing to the cheers of his friends with the tagline of the commercial reading, when everybody plays, we all win. It's a stirring Christmas commercial, and it's intended to elicit that desire for us to have right relationships, to have right peace and harmony, and including those who feel excluded oftentimes. Providentially, I happened to see this commercial right after a news story about a 12-year-old boy who had been bullied at school so bad, physically beaten so bad he had to be hospitalized. And I thought, how strange that a commercial like this would run following such a horrific story in the news. And yet that's what we sense at Christmas. There's this desire and this focus for peace and joy and inclusion, and at the same time it heightens the darkness and the brokenness that we all experience. So even as the culture tries desperately to move away from God and the Bible, this message of brokenness and the need to make it right continues to prevail. In fact, according to the Pew Research Center, this was not surprising to me, hopefully not to you, 50% of all Americans are going to be attending church today, tomorrow, or on Christmas Day. Now, that doesn't sound like a completely secularized culture if 50% are still going to be going to church. So what is it about this time of year in particular that heightens our awareness to God and the need for God? And what is it about this time of year that heightens our awareness to the brokenness of mankind and the need to make it right? I believe with all my heart it's because the great story of God's creation, fall, redemption, restoration still resonates in those created in His image. We still know that this isn't how it's supposed to be. We know that there's a greater calling and a higher order and a better way to live. In the next chapter in Micah, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the prophet said, God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We know how we're supposed to live. We know how we're supposed to love and serve other people. We know that we're supposed to have a right relationship with God, and yet our sin nature keeps us from it. Our sin nature fractures the relationships we're supposed to have with one another, and it fractures the relationship with God himself. And so we know we need a Savior. We need a redeemer. We need God to come down from heaven to help us, to redeem us, and for him to make things right. Or we can't live out the essence of that commercial and that little boy being included and loved. In the 8th century B.C., the Israelites were struggling with doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with the Lord. Not much has changed, my beloved, in human history. The Israelites were engaged in the worship of false gods, much like we do today. They were subject to unscrupulous leaders, much like we are today. And so God raised up a prophet by the name of Micah. He's known as a minor prophet, not because he's less significant than Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah, but he just wrote less. And God raised him up to testify to the judgment that would come upon Israel, the ten tribes in the north and the judgment that ultimately would come upon Judah and Benjamin, the tribes in the south. For their idolatry, for their disobedience, during Micah's reign, he saw the ten tribes of Israel fall violently 
to the Assyrian Empire in 721 BC. He, he witnessed that. He was able to witness God sparing Judah and King Hezekiah in the south. But he did prophesy to the Babylonians coming 140 years later to decimate Judah so that Israel and, Ju- and Judah would be no more. God's people in God's land would cease to exist. But in the midst of this indictment against God's people, there's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. There's this verse tucked in, a promise of restoration, a promise of reconciliation, a promise that God would send a Savior King to make things right, to redeem God's people, and one day this Messiah, this Savior, would come and bless the entire world. And so in the midst of a world that seemed loveless and broken then, God said, I'm going to send a Savior. In the midst of a world right now that seems broken and loveless, God says, I am going to send my Savior again. And the promise goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and it goes all the way forward to Revelation chapter 21. And so here we have steeped in the Old Testament this promise that God would send a Savior who would come and overcome pain and suffering, the power of sin and death, and promise to his people redemption, the presence of God with us forever, and the rule of Jesus Christ over the heavens and the earth. And so I want to look at, I want to look at this one-verse prophecy in Micah as we reflect upon Christmas season 2018. It's an amazing statement for me to say Christmas season 2018. Seems like not too long ago we were talking about Christmas season 1998. One of my first Christmas sermons. I want to expand on our understanding of who this Jesus Christ is. Beyond the nativity scenes, beyond the postcards, beyond... The, the mangers and the baby Jesus. I want you to see Jesus Christ. Yes, he came as a baby. Yes, he lived as a man. But he came to rule over Israel because his origins are from of old. So when you drive by that nativity scene or you get the postcard of baby Jesus, you'll think, well, he's not like that anymore. Four things I want to show you briefly. One, his humility. The Savior's humility. Number two, his purpose. Number three, his rule, and number four, his glory. His humility, his purpose, his rule, and his glory. First, let's look at his humility. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, after Jesus was born, you know what happened. The Magi go, and they seek out Christ because they were following the star. King Herod finds out about this, and when he heard about it, he was disturbed that they were seeking another king, a king of the Jews, because he was king of the Jews. All of Jerusalem was talking about it. And so when, he, when, when Herod assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired where the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior was going to be born according to the Old Testament. And so the scribes and the priests come up to him and they say, well, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Why Bethlehem? What was so significant about such an insignificant little town in the middle of nowhere? A couple things, I think, its insignificance revealed something about this Messiah who would come and the people he would redeem. So small was Bethlehem, it was not named 
in the possessions of Judah in Joshua 15. It was not named in Nehemiah chapter 11 when they were cataloging the cities. As late as Nehemiah, this city was not identified in the books. And therefore, you say, well, what a fitting city for Christ to come from. Because we know that Christ came not to be served, but to serve, and what? And give his life as a ransom for many. And so he would come to a no-name city as a no-name savior. The world would want him to come from where? Back then, Alexandria, Jerusalem, a little bit later, Rome. Today, we'd want him to come from where? San Francisco, New York, Beijing, Paris, right? A city of prominence, a city on the map. Because that's where the Savior should come from, not this Savior, not this Savior. It pointed directly to the man and to his ministry. Jesus said, Matthew 20, 28, I did not come to be served, but to serve as a humble servant, as a sacrificial servant who would climb upon that cross and give his life as a ransom for many. And by grace, that includes us. It tells us something as well about those who would be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul identifies us well, doesn't he? He said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We are like Bethlehem. We are the least and the last and the lost, and God so decreed to save us that we might glorify Him and all that He's done because we have nothing to glorify in ourselves. This is the ultimate rags-to-riches story for Jesus Christ and for His people. Starting so small, how small? Bethlehem-like small. You can use that as a synonym if you want in your writing. Bethlehem-like small. This small beginning, though, would one day we know that God promised in the Scriptures that Jesus Christ and His church would be exalted to reign over the heavens and the earth. So we wouldn't stay in the manger. But Bethlehem also pointed to the chosen king that would come from the line of David centuries before Jesus was born, before the foundations of the world that had been promised. After the fall of Adam and Eve from the presence and grace of God, even as God was pronouncing the curse upon Adam and Eve and Satan in Genesis chapter 3, he alludes to this Savior, this Messiah that would come from the line of David. A promised Redeemer. Listen, Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to Satan now. And between your offspring and her offspring. And then he said, he, referring to the Savior, the Messiah, shall bruise your head, he will crush Satan's head, and you shall bruise his heel when he sends him to the cross. The Savior would come from the line of Shem. He would descend from the seed of Abraham, the Jews, from Isaac and from Jacob. He would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. Later from the root of Jesse, we learn that this Messiah will come from the house of David. God said to David through the prophet Nathan, 2 Samuel chapter 7, listen. God said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, the ultimate son, Jesus Christ. 
Speaking of the Christ, Isaiah said this, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for his people. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. And then right down to the town, the very place of his birth, Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you though are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will rule over Israel. Bethlehem, the house of bread, how fitting for the bread of life who will come to feed the spiritual malnourished people of this planet. God's intentions are revealed. It is made known in this single verse that he intends to contrast the smallness of Christ's birth and the smallness of the beginning of the ministry and the magnification that will take place when he rules over his people and indeed over the heavens and the earth. Paul said in Philippians 2.9, God has highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and bestowed upon him that name that is above every name. And you know that. So important is this identification of this humble servant and the humble people that would follow him. In the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ is identified as that man, but can't be because the people don't know that he's, he was born in Bethlehem. When they were actually critiquing him and criticizing him as the Messiah, we're told this in John 7, 41. Listen, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They knew he was from Galilee. They didn't know he had been born in, in Bethlehem. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was born? So centuries after the prophecies, they're still looking for the Savior to come from this little, insignificant, no-name town. They knew it. But they didn't know that Christ had been born there. So what, why would God do all this that 2,000 years later we might be gathering and talking about the incarnation, the coming of God, and becoming a man to earth? Point number two, the Savior's purpose. Look at, look at chapter Micah 5 and verse 2 again, please. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah... Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. So Bethlehem is so small, they have no influence in the politics of Israel or Judah. They certainly would have no solution to overcome the Assyrians coming or the Babylonians later. And so this prophecy, tucked away, would have been somewhat strange to the prophet. And I would imagine to the people as well. And yet God makes it clear that out of Bethlehem, one would come for him. Would the people be blessed? We're immeasurably blessed. But the ultimate purpose of Jesus Christ coming as a baby, growing up as a man, living the sinless life, dying the sinner's death for us is not just for us. We are blessed by it. But God said that out of you, Judah, will come for me. And you say, well, wait a minute. What, what is Christ doing coming for God? God doesn't need to be saved. God is sinless. So how are we to understand this? This ultimate purpose. He had said, God had already said to the last judge Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, when calling David to rule over Israel, just as Christ would rule over his church, listen, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I, God said, have provided for myself, not the people of Israel. God provided for himself a king. God promised from the line of David, from the city of Bethlehem, one, not many, one would come and be called forth for his glory. 
And that's it. You want the essence of Christmas, of Christ being born in a manger? It was for the glory of the Father. God said, I will raise up a ruler. I will raise up a king who will reconcile a people to me that I might have them enjoy them and they might enjoy me both now and forever. When the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary, he said almost the exact same thing. The one who would rule. Listen, this is from Luke chapter 1. He, the Savior, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be what? No end. So the eternal reign of Jesus Christ with his church over the heavens and over the earth, this is the ultimate end and the glorification of God the Father. This is the purpose of the whole story. Why did God create Why did he allow man to fall? Why did he redeem us in Christ? And why will he reconcile us ultimately in the end to him? It's for his own sake, for his own name's sake. So we can gather in a morning like this and say, he is an amazing God. He is such a great God that this would be his story, the magnification of Jesus Christ and the exaltation of his church in the end. Christmas and our celebration of the birth of Christ this year and every year It is nothing less than the affirmation of God the Father exalting the Son, raising Him to the highest place that the world might adore Him. It is nothing less than Jesus Christ glorifying the Father, saying, I will come as a baby. I will live a sinless life. I will die, Father, for Your name's sake. I will rise from the dead, and in so doing, I will conquer the power of death that I might save some. For your glory. Christ said, I will become the substitute on that cross so that sinners may be saved by grace and worship and adore you forever. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was the cross. That was to go to the cross and receive the full punishment that we rightly deserved, that we would receive the grace and mercy instead. This hope of a coming Savior would have been a great encouragement in Micah's day. In Micah's day, the people saw false gods being worshipped. They saw leaders abusing their power. They saw injustice that surrounded them. But they knew, in light of this prophecy, that God would do something for his namesake, independent of their behavior. So even though they had turned their back on God, and I would argue even though many today in our culture have turned their backs on God, God will be faithful to his promise. He must, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his own name, for the sake of the Holy Spirit that dwells in his church. He'll be faithful to his name, and he'll be faithful to the people that he called out of the darkness and into the glorious light of the Savior. For all who repent and believe and put their faith in Jesus Christ, you can this Christmas, 2018, 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, you can rest assured that God's not going to forsake his promise to redeem the Son's glory through the church. Isaiah said in Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, listen, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
So we've seen his humility, this baby born in a no-name town to no-name parents. We've seen the purpose, which is, listen, Christmas is about the glorification and magnification of God through the redeeming of people out of the darkness, his church. What about this rule? It says something here that should disturb you a little bit. It says, look again at Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. When we think of having someone rule over us, especially in light of our contemporary politics, that may cause you to shudder a little bit. The rulers in Micah's day were not living as they ought to. I would say that many of the rulers today are not living as they ought. So how are we as God's people to take comfort that this Christ would be our ruler, that he'd rule over his people, Israel, the church, and we know the Bible says, in fact, the entire world. Point number three, the Savior's rule. Micah prophesied for over 20 years, long-term in office. He saw the reign of Pekah and Hoshea in the north. He saw the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in the south. And most of these men struggled in their submission and fidelity to God. Some so much you could say that they did not know him at all. Isaiah described them well in Isaiah 56. He's called them blind watchmen without knowledge and shepherds who have no understanding, all having turned to their own way, each to his own gain. And yet Micah comes along and says, there's going to be someone who comes that is so dramatically different than the rulers you know today. And I would say the same for us. There's going to be one who will come and rule over us that is nothing like the rulers that we have over us today. And I won't list any names lest we become political, but you know them. These are not rulers you turn to for security and nourishment. These are not people you seek out for peace. And yet, Micah says, this one who will come for God will be different, dramatically different. He will have a single focus, and that is the glorification of the Father. His purpose will be to glorify the Father, and in so doing, it will be for our well-being. It is good when Jesus Christ glorifies the Father. It's good when he exercises his office to the magnification of the Father's name because that's good for his church. David describes his rule through song. Listen to this. This is going to be the rule of Christ. I don't know that there's a man or woman ruling today that could be described like this. Here it is. David singing. He, Christ, who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of the morning at sunrise of a cloudless dawn. The glistening after the rain on the sprouting grass of the earth. And you see, that, that sounds kind of weird. If you've ever seen that, I used to have lawns in my yard. It's not anymore. The gophers beat me. So now it's artificial turf. I used to have lawns, and I used to love, in the morning, the, the sprinklers would come on early, like at 5 a.m., and I'd love going outside after they were, uh, the sprinklers were done. The sun would come out, and it looked like there were diamonds on top of the grass. Beautiful. This is the image that David was describing, that Micah wants us to see, of this Messiah, this new ruler. He'd be completely faithful, unwaveringly so to God the Father. And as a result, he'd be beautiful to us. He'd be compassionate with us. He'd be the kind of ruler that you'd want to go to, to be nourished and protected. That's how this Messiah is described. 
And you say, well, how, how did that happen this first time around? I mean, we look upon the world and we don't really see Christ ruling. Micah is talking about his coming in his first advent. How does he rule now and how will he rule in the future? You know the story. Following his sinless life and his death upon the cross, he went in the grave for three days. And then he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he spent 40 days testifying to over 500 people who witnessed this. And then he ascended into heaven. And the Bible says he's seated at God's right hand. But shortly after he ascended, what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of men. In fact, we know this about 100 years after Micah, 600 years before Jesus was born, Ezekiel and Jeremiah testified to this incredible truth of God reigning in the hearts of his people. Ezekiel said, I will give you a new heart, speaking on behalf of God to the church, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a born-again heart. And then Jeremiah dovetails on that, Jeremiah 31, which we also hear in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, the rule of Jesus Christ is inside out, not outside in. How does Christ rule? He captivates your heart. He captivates your mind, and you'll want to follow him. That's such a beautiful thing about the gospel, isn't it? Religion's always outside in. The gospel's inside out. He transforms our hearts that we love him and want to follow him and serve him. Prior to his ascension, the the disciples, they were nervous. And so to calm their nerves, he teaches this very teaching from Ezekiel and Jeremiah. He explains to them how he's going to rule over them. John chapter 14, listen, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. You know who that is, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. That is the spirit of Christ. That is the Holy Spirit sent out at Pentecost, descending upon the disciples and coming to all who have repented and believed ever since that day. And so Jesus was not like the leaders of Micah's day. He's not like the leaders of our day. He's not going to rule with an iron fist, and he's not going to have a reckless disregard for the ways of God like the prophets and the kings did then. He rules in the most wonderful way possible. He gives us the desires of his Father's heart. He enables us to want to and then empowers us to do so through the Spirit to actually live these Christian lives, to be the people who include those who are excluded, to be the people who love those who are not loved. By bringing the Spirit upon us and being our God, entering into a loving, intimate relationship with Him, we being His people, His laws are no longer burdensome. His teachings are no longer violent to our flesh. Instead, we long to know them and we long to live in accordance with them because we know this is how God created us to be. No longer our wills in contradistinction to His, but aligned with His, that we might say with Paul in Colossians 3.15 that the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. So this is how Jesus rules over us right now. And if you know Christ, you know what I mean. He changes your heart to change your life. When you follow Christ and you love Christ, you will live differently than in the flesh. 
And in so doing, you will fulfill the great law to love God and love one another. His rule will culminate in no sin separating his people from him. In the end, when Christ comes again in glory and he gives us new bodies, there'll be no sin, no separation. So we will be 100% aligned with the will of God and the love of Christ and what he desires for us. What a glorious day that will be. But he will also rule over all the nations. It won't just be his church and his people. Prior to his death, Jacob, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, he gives his sons a blessing, each of the 12 tribes. Listen to the blessing that he gives to Judah. Genesis 49, 10. Listen. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs, that's Christ, shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. When Christ comes again in glory, every nation will submit to him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. The he to whom the scepter of power and rules belongs is Jesus Christ. And so all the way back in Genesis 49, we have the prophecy of this baby who would be born in Bethlehem from the seed of Abraham, from the line of Judah and the house of David. This humble baby born in a manger to no-name parents would be the one who would have the scepter in his hand and rule over the nations. John reveals this clearly in Revelation chapter 20. Listen to the baby who comes in glory, lest you think of Christ in any other way than he truly is. John has this vision. He says, Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Now listen. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, that's the angels and you, were following him on white horses. I hope you like to ride a horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with an iron, with a rod of iron, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, what? King of kings and Lord of lords. So in the end, God's people will follow Christ. And in the end, all the nations will submit to his rule, either through judgment or salvation. But everyone will submit. For those who repent and believe, for those who have confessed their sins and turned to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you'll be spared this day of judgment. And what a great thing that is. You will enjoy the rule of a king who said to you, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will come to a king who said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will come to a king who said, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That will be your king in Christ. But for those who persist in rebellion, for those who say, I will not repent, I will not turn, I will not worship God, I will not follow the Christ then they will only know Jesus as judge. They will only know him as the man on the white horse who comes to bring the wrath of God. Are you still with me? Humility, purpose, rule. I want to show you one more and I'll close. I want to show you his glory. 
But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The prophet wants to be very careful that we understand that this Messiah that he was prophesying to was not any ordinary man. This was not like the prophets or kings or priests of old. On that Christmas day 2,000 years ago, the Savior that was born to the Virgin Mary that became a man was infinitely more than just a man. He was fully man. We know that. But he was also fully God. You say, well, how do I know that? The latter part of this verse. Origins from of old, from ancient times. Some of your translations may read, if you have the NASB, from eternity past, not bad. ESV, from ancient days. And so what do you have? You have the baby who was God. You have the man who is God. Much like the description that we had of the Messiah riding the white horse in Revelation 20, Daniel, also about five to 600 years prior to the birth of Christ, listen to what he said of the Christ. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Speaking of Christ, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. That's the Messiah that Micah was speaking of. This baby born of a virgin in the lowly town of Bethlehem was and is none other than God. And that's what makes this season so extraordinary. That we talk about God becoming a man and remaining God. And so when we contemplate his incarnation, when we sing about his birth, and we, we think about the lowly place from which he came, we must recognize we're singing about and talking about God. It is, without question, the single most extraordinary event in all of human history that God would become a man. So when the psalmist said of the Son in Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It has no end because this baby is the king and this king is God. No beginning and no end for God. And therefore, no beginning and no end for his throne. It will be eternal in nature. And isn't it extraordinary that in this single verse, in the minor prophet of Micah, you have, now the church spent two, three, four hundred years trying to wrestle this out. And yet in this single verse, we learn about the father and the son. Right? The father's prophesying about the one he would raise up to bring himself honor and glory. So you have father and son minimally. And we can say Holy Spirit because it was the Holy Spirit that spoke to the prophets. So you have the Trinity right here in Matthew in Micah 5, 2. But you also have Jesus Christ being revealed as what? Fully God and fully man. One verse. Why did we take so long to figure that out? This one who would come would be and is the Son of God. That's why John says at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he says in verse 14 of John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christmas, my beloved, more than anything else, is about God glorifying Himself through the salvation of people out of darkness. 
That's what it's about. The very heart of it, the very celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is about God magnifying his name by saving sinners like us out of the darkness. That's why it's called good news. That's why the angels said to the shepherds, good news has come to you this night, that you don't have to perish in your sin, but you can live in the Savior's blood. We attach so much to Christmas, and I, I don't want to spend any time talking about Santa Claus or Christmas trees. I, I don't want to. But we do, we do have family, we have food, we have presents, we have time off. These are all blessings, to be sure. They're extraordinary blessings. I can't wait to meet with my family in the next couple days. But that's not what Christmas is about. We must not miss the primary reason for the season. And I, I hate the cliché Jesus is the reason for the season. I hate it. But here's a better one for you. Not a cliche. The reason for the season is God sending his son to rule over the heavens and the earth. And in so doing, we, we, we're blessed. We are blessed. The rule of Jesus Christ is king for the glory of God and the hope of his people. You see, unlike Israel and Judah, we, we don't have... Assyria and Babylon right now at our throats. We are protected in Christ. Under the righteous rule of Christ, God's people are safe and secure. If you're in Christ, you are safe and secure. John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus said, that I will lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. If you're in Christ, Assyria cannot hurt you. Babylon cannot hurt you. Satan cannot hurt you. Your flesh cannot hurt you. Under the righteous rule of King Jesus, the church is protected from Satan's schemes and his practices, so much so that Jesus said not even the very gates of hell can prevail against you, the church. That's secure. Under the righteous rule of our Prince of Peace, having made atonement for our sins upon the cross, shedding his blood that we might be saved, we are reconciled to God and therefore what? Listen, there is no condemnation for you if you're in Christ. That's the best present ever, is it not? That you will not be judged or condemned for your sins. That if you have Christ as your Savior, this baby born in a manger who died upon the cross, that you might be forgiven, that you cannot be condemned in the sight of a holy God. Romans chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in Christ, you're there. Can't be lost. Under the righteous rule of our conquering king, my beloved, for those of you who suffer from anxiety this time of year, it's really interesting how Christmas corresponds with more anxiety. should be the opposite if we know the gospel. Your conquering king conquers all worries of all kind. Physical health, financial hardship, relational strains, all anxiety, all pain, even death. Christ says, in me you are secure, in me you are satisfied. We can, like Joshua, preparing to lead God's people, hear Moses say to us, as he said to Joshua, Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. That is your promise in Christ. So in the midst of this world filled with pain and suffering and heartache, 
our souls can have rest in him because our end is his end. Do you know that? He went to the cross so you didn't have to, but his glorious end is your glorious end. And that end, my beloved, is reigning with Christ forever and ever. It is being in the presence of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the church forever and ever. It's enjoying God and being enjoyed by God. It's worshiping God without any sin. You say, well, that's good. That's not good. That's perfect. That's what our hearts long for most. No physical struggles. Slept on my shoulder, wrong shoulder last night. Woke up this morning thinking, oh, my goodness. What happened to my shoulder? It's like someone took a hammer to it in the middle of the night. That's going to go away because I get a new body. I get a new shoulder. You too, if you're in Christ. No broken relationships. Spent time this past week confessing over the relationships in my life that are not right. That won't be a problem in the new heaven and the new earth. All relationships will be rightly restored. No sin in any relationship. No spiritual separation of any kind. No disconnect with God. No, I'm praying, but he's not hearing. I'm reading, but I'm not hearing. Complete unity and intimacy in the community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and you, the church. No death. No death. This time of year is very hard because we think of those that have gone before us and we miss them at Christmas. Don't we? Certain times are hard. This is one of those times. In the new heaven and the earth, there'll be no death. No separation because of death. You will know and be known forever and ever. Perfect restoration with God and with his people, the church. So we run our commercials and we set up our nativity scenes and we go to church, at least half of us do. Because like the Israelites and the Jews of Micah's day, deep down we know, we know that apart from God sending the Son to make it right, we have no hope. We know that. We try to make family or church or, or parties or good deeds or alcohol, we try to make that our hope, but it does not fix the problem. The problem is sin, sin that must be forgiven and paid for, and that solution only comes through Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary. There may not be a physical army threatening our northern borders like Assyria or Babylon, but you do experience the daily assaults of Satan, the pressures of the world, the temptations of your own flesh, all sufficient to topple any man or woman, no matter how strong you think you are. And so we, like Micah, we long for the coming of the Savior from heaven. Our hope is in Him. We long for that day that John saw in a vision on the island of Patmos that he communicates to us in Revelation 21. Listen, and I'll close. John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is your destiny if you're in Christ, my beloved. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. That's Christ in the church. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with, God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then he says in verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, this is Christ. I am making all things new. What a glorious opportunity. Even if only once a year, the whole world stops and recognizes that God is magnifying his name through Jesus Christ and the salvation of his people. How glorious that we stop to recognize that and praise him as well. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have magnified yourself and you continue to do so as you pardon the iniquity of your people and you pass over the transgressions of your church. We are so thankful that you do not retain your anger forever, but you delight in steadfast love because you are love. We praise you for being compassionate with us, for treading our iniquities underfoot, we praise you for being a God through the cross that cast our sins into the depth of the sea so they are no more. We thank you, Lord, for showing your faithfulness to your promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob through David to Christ and then to us. We praise you, Lord, for Jesus, for the ancient of days, for sending the cross that we might not perish for giving us hope through the gospel of grace, that we, as sinners, through repentance and faith, can be saved even this day. We praise you, Lord, for this message of hope this Christmas season, that it's more than about Santa Claus or presents or even a baby in a manger, that it's about this King who will rule gloriously over the heavens and the earth forever and ever. We pray, Lord, that you would call us into that right relationship, that you would compel us even this day to confess our sins to you, and put our faith in Jesus Christ to redeem us from the day of judgment. I pray, Lord, that you would bless my brothers and sisters, bless this church, bless your church here in the South Bay during this Christmas season, that you might, through all the noise and all the music and all the, the presence and all the rapping, that you might magnify Christ above all. And in so doing, bring yourself honor and glory. You are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.